You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Over the last few months, I've had on my to-do list that I've needed to service my car. When you get into my car and you turn the ignition on, a lot of little lights come on like a Christmas tree on the dashboard. Pretty much every light you see on that slide. Uh, All those lights turn on and aggressively beep at me, and I I don't drive much. But finally, my blinkers the other day uh, stopped working, and I said to myself, I've, I've really got to get these lights back on. I've really got to get these blinkers working if I want to continue driving. And so I took it over to the shop, and I expected some very light repairs. <laughs> About an hour later, the mechanic calls me, and he says, we found some things. <laughs> You're not going to be able to drive this vehicle until you get these things fixed. He goes on to tell me the following things were needing repair. The license plate bulbs were out, the rear turn signal bulbs were out, the rear brake pads and rotors are shot, the front brake pads are shot, alignment issues, fluid leak in the engine, cooling system failure, CV joints and CV axles, whatever that is, were broken, and the radiator was cracked apart, and there was no coolant, and the car left to leak. (laughs) He's like, sir, I can't make you not drive but I would highly recommend you not driving this vehicle long distance till you get these things fixed. Would you like these things fixed? I'm like, uh, yeah. And so uh, please fix it. And so we continued to talk and I went on to ask him the big question, how much is this going to cost? And he goes silent for a few seconds and he goes, it's going to be (laughs) $4,650. But right now we can only do the catastrophic level repairs so it's fully drivable and that's going to be about two thousand five hundred dollars and i'm just thinking to myself oh my goodness i really don't need a car and i'm like okay uh do it i've got a road trip tomorrow so you might as well drive you might as well fix that now the car is fine but i mention all of that because today in our passage we're going to see a major moment in the life of the early church when all of the lights on the dashboard were blinking like a wild Christmas tree. Uh, We're going to see a moment in the early church where if the problem doesn't get fixed right away, they're not going to be driving anywhere. It's going to be a catastrophic failure. We're going to see the moment when the church itself is debating within itself the very essence, the core of Christianity, where if they end up wrong on this, it's going to be a total engine failure. What they're debating is the reality of grace. Grace means undeserved favor. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, it's about grace. It's about God-loving, undeserving people like you and I, It's about God choosing to redeem us and to save us. It's about Jesus Christ who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved to die. Ephesians 2 says it well, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gospel itself, the message of Christianity was at stake. And if they're wrong about this, it was game over. And so that's really my main idea this morning, which happens to be the main idea of this passage. And that main idea is that Christianity is all about grace. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his death and his resurrection and his promise to one day return and make all things new, to wipe away every tear and to make all things right. My outline is going to be up on the screen, and it essentially is going to flow right from this passage, and it's pretty straightforward this morning. Number one, what happened? We'll see in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, and this will be a bit technical. Uh, Back in my theological days, we learned that some messages have immediate application, other messages have stored application, which means we have to kind of sit on them and think about the application, and that's a little bit of this passage. It's a little bit technical, but uh, once we crack this open, there's a lot there. And number two, what does this mean for our lives? Essentially fleshing out the application of this passage in our lives for today. Now, before we jump into this debate, for those of you who are new or maybe you're visiting this morning or you've been kind of in and out over the last few months, we have been studying the book of Acts as a church. And the book of Acts is essentially in the New Testament, and it's the origin story of the first church, the, the, the genesis of the Christian church. The book starts just after the resurrection of Jesus. He says in a few days he is going to disappear and that he was going to send his spirit and that his spirit would come and would enable the church to be his witnesses, his spokespeople to the world. Uh, They're in Jerusalem and all of his followers at that point are Jewish in their background. More days go by. And Jesus ascends, he miraculously disappears, and God, as he promised, sends his spirit, this outer power that created an inner wonder. And we see that the church is rebooted. The church is relaunched. They've been impacted by grace, and they're marked by things like a radical unselfishness, a generosity, forgiveness, but also a deep sense of purpose. That purpose was to join God all around the world and in their communities and to make him known. And so the book of Acts continues as we read the pages of the book of Acts. Uh, First, we see thousands of Jewish background people converting or believing on Jesus. But then all of a sudden we see God using different Christians empowered by his spirit to bring outside people outside of the Jewish tradition to faith in Jesus. We see some Samaritans and then we see an Ethiopian, different races, not Jewish in their background, coming to faith in the Messiah. And then we saw just a few weeks ago a Roman soldier and his family trust in the Messiah. And then we saw just a few weeks later, we saw a Roman politician trust in Jesus and become Christians. And then last week, of course, 
we looked at how for 18 months, two key leaders in the church, Paul and Barnabas, were sent out by the Spirit and the church to go into non-Jewish lands, Greek lands, Roman lands, and to speak about the things of God, the gospel to those individuals. We commonly call this the first missionary journey. Thousands of people becoming Christians from different backgrounds, different races, different classes, different stations in life, all becoming believers in God. The theme is that, as we read the pages of Acts, the theme is that the gospel, this message of grace, is for all people, Jew or non-Jew. Everyone can know the Messiah. Everyone can be reconciled to God and to each other in a new community called the church, which really brings us to today. As soon as Paul and Barnabas finish this first missionary journey, they go back to the church that sent them out, and they report all that God was doing through them. This is very similar to what Wesley and I just did a few days ago. We drove back to the church that sent us out to plant this church, a church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we stood up in front of about 600 people along with missionaries that are in Asia and in, and in Africa, uh, church planters in Baltimore and in the Middle East, and we shared about all that God was doing here in Washington, D.C., but thankfully, what happens in this passage didn't happen to us in Raleigh. And so let's look at our first point, where we are this morning, what happened. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the word circumcised means to cut around. If you're wondering, cut around what, uh, you can Google that later, or you can ask a friend. I don't have a slide on the screen for this one, but you can, you can ask a friend later and, and get back to me. For thousands of years up until this point here in the book of Acts, if you were born into the family of God, Israel, and you were a male, on the eighth day, you were circumcised. It showed that you belonged to the covenant, the promise of God, the family of God. And for thousands of years up until this point, if you were born outside of the covenant, if you were born outside of the family of God and you were seeking the true God, if you wanted to worship the true and living God and enter into relationship with him, if you were a male and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you would take circumcision showing that you belonged to the covenant. You belonged to the promise, the family of God. And as a follower of God, male or female, you would observe the laws of God. These laws were moral laws. We often call those the Ten Commandments, which never go away, but also the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel. These were laws that God gave Israel to point to his coming salvation that would be in his Messiah, as well as to show his holiness, his glory. Uh, these laws totally set Israel apart from every other nation. 
Now, these laws usually centered around the temple. They had to do with things like sacrifices and atonement and forgiveness, what to do when you broke the moral law. But they also had to do with things like your diet, what you could eat or drink, what you could not eat or drink. They had to do with things like cleanliness, what you could touch or not touch, and also things like business practices, sex, marriage, family, the marketplace, and all other sorts of things. To be right with God, you needed to have faith in him, faith in his coming Messiah, his character, and you needed to live out these laws faithfully. And if you were a male, of course, to especially take circumcision, which was the sign of God's promise, his covenant. Now, as you can imagine, all of these laws would have been certainly very difficult to follow. And thousands and thousands of years ago, Moses, who handed down these laws, actually says in one of his last speeches that Israel would fail in following all of these laws, but that one day there would be a new covenant. There would be a new promise from God. And then, of course, we read in the Gospels, in the New Testament, there comes along Jesus Christ, and he proves to be the Messiah in every way. He's the Son of God. He's the true Israel. And with Jesus, God brings his new covenant, his new promise. It's a promise that he'll give men and women a new heart. He'll cut away our old hearts, and he'll give us a new heart. It's in places like Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And in places like Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes on the scene, and with him, he brings a new covenant. He declares all foods clean. He often ignores the ceremonial laws, and he touches lepers, and he touches dead bodies. He lives a perfect life, holy and distinct. He's like no one else. He never sins. He's filled with humor, with life, with joy. He's a living picture of what it means to embody the law, loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourself. And when he comes on the scene, the Gospels tell us he is the final sacrifice. The blood of animals, the book of Hebrews tells us, could never take away sins. It was a picture. It was an object lesson pointing to something more, that God himself would die to make peace. And as Jesus dies on the cross and the veil is torn in two, It shows that that sacrificial system with all of its unclean and clean laws was fulfilled in him. It was done away with. The law had fulfilled its purpose. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul sums it up. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith in him. The point is, 
is that now anyone who would seek to worship the true God, anyone who would seek to be reconciled to the true God, the way you do that now is through faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in the Messiah alone. Through faith in Christ, God brings you into a relationship with himself. He brings you into a new covenant, a new promise with himself. He forgives you of all of your sin. He gives you a new heart, and he brings you into a new family, a family that isn't confined to one location or one nation anymore, but is spread throughout all the world in churches living under different governments and in different cultures. Now, if you're tracking with me, we may look at this and we may totally get this. But in the early church, there were people who were Christians that were coming from a Jewish background, and they really struggled with this idea of faith in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. They said that it was Christ plus something else that needed to reconcile you to God. It was Jesus plus something else that made you righteous. And that debate is what's about to happen here. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these guys are a bit of a buzzkill. And Paul and Barnabas have been sharing all the amazing things that the Lord was doing through them. And thousands and thousands of people were becoming Believers from different races, from different classes, from different stations of life, all becoming believers, Romans, Greeks, everything. And certain Jewish background believers steeped in Judaism, he they hear the believers giving this positive report of all that the grace of God was doing in these individuals' lives, and they say, no, they must become culturally Jewish in order to be saved. It's Jesus plus something in order to be saved. And the passage continues, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the, the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That is the law. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So in the midst of all of this debate, Peter stands up, this leader in the early church, and he says, God has been giving his Holy Spirit to everyone who believes. God has been giving individuals a new heart. He's welcoming them into the new covenant. He's giving them life. 
He's resurrecting their spirits. And it doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile, non-Jewish or completely Jewish, because ultimately it's through faith in Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus something else, but it's trust, abandonment in God alone. Trust in the Messiah alone. And verse 12 gives us the result. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It starts to click. And Paul and Barnabas, they add to Peter's point, and say that it's God who's giving his spirit. It's God who's giving this new heart to everyone who trusts in Christ alone. It's not about Christ plus something else. Christ is sufficient. God is enough. And after they, they, they finish speaking, James, who's the half-brother of uh, the Lord Jesus, he stands up and he gives this consensus verdict. Verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Said another way, he says those who are turning to God don't need to take circumcision. He says it's through Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. He is our righteousness. He is our acceptance before God. They don't have to do additional things in order to be acceptable to God. But then he adds something interesting. He says in verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, this is not the civil and ceremonial law coming in the back door after the front door has shut it out. The verdict is in. It's that salvation is through grace alone, through Christ alone. But James does say there are certain practices that non-Jewish background believers would be loving to not practice around Jewish background believers. If Jewish people saw someone claiming to love God, the God of their covenant, running around eating meat with uh, non-kosher meat, uh, drinking blood as a delicacy, this would have completely destroyed the church's credibility with those non-believing Jews. He says instead they should lay down their rights in cases where they were around or in fellowship with other Jewish believers or non-Jewish believers, uh, or I should say Jewish believers who yet don't believe for the sake of the gospel. This meeting ends, and Paul and Barnabas take this letter, they take this verdict to the church at Antioch, and the passage closes by saying this, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, there is a lot here. As I said, this is a bit technical. And I want to take the remaining time and really ask ourselves this morning, what does this mean for us today? Uh, here at King's Church, we don't skip over passages in the Bible. We believe that all of Scripture is helpful for us, that even if we have to crack it open, there's goodness in it. And so what does this mean for our lives? I have three 
thoughts for what this wonderful passage means for our lives. Number one, the gospel gives us spiritual freedom. Number one, the gospel gives us spiritual freedom. At stake in this passage is the very heart of Christianity, the gospel, God's grace. And grace means undeserved favor, unconditional love. Grace is ultimately what makes Christianity absolutely unique. Every other religion out there essentially is basically advice. They basically tell you in one way or another, here's what you need in order to connect to God. Here's what you need in order to have divine life. But the gospel is not first advice. It's good news. It's good news not about what we need to be or what we need to do, but it's good news about what has been done for us through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. Said another way, every other religion out there, even if it starts by inspiring you, every other religion out there eventually adds burdens to you. And that's almost what happened here. The uniqueness of Christianity was almost lost. They're debating about whether it's Jesus or Jesus plus something else. But the gospel is all about grace. It's all about our burdens being lifted. Grace, God's grace, takes away our burdens. Immediately when we become a Christian, the grace of God takes away the need to try to prove ourselves. It takes away the burden of our past. That is the guilt and the regret for the things we've done. The grace of God takes away the burden of the future. That is the fear we're not going to live up to the standards. The grace of God takes away the burden of parental expectations. That is, we're not defined by what our parents think of us. It takes away the burden of societal expectations. We're not our job or our career or our success or our failures. None of that justifies us. None of that makes us righteous. Relationships, how we measure up income, none of that. We're justified, we're made right, not through anything we've done, but through the grace of God. And anytime we begin to slip into the idea that it's Jesus plus something else, we'll begin to lose this spiritual freedom. We'll feel the burden. But this morning, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus himself, who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Number two, Related to this idea, the gospel gives us cultural freedom. Grace makes cultural freedom possible. What I mean by cultural freedom is that when a person finds faith in Jesus, they don't have to culturally 
become something else in order to be righteous. When a Roman soldier becomes a Christian, they don't have to culturally become Jewish in order to be right with God. When an Ethiopian treasurer becomes a Christian, he doesn't have to become culturally Jewish to be right with God. And when a Jew becomes a Christian, they don't have to give up their respect to their kosher laws and religious festivals because that's not what makes us righteous. Christianity doesn't belong to one culture more than another. Christianity, at the end of the day, is about universal truths. Culture and customs and language are not what makes someone righteous, but that's almost what happened here. The uniqueness of Christianity was almost lost. They're debating if Christianity belongs only to the Jewish culture, but they realize that it's grace and grace alone that makes a person righteous, that makes a person right with God, not a culture. Now, this is important because if we lose sight of grace, if we lose sight of the sheer rescue of God in our lives, we can begin to think that it's our cultural distinctives that make us righteous. We can begin to think that culture is not culture, but that it's righteousness. In Egypt, walking in someone's house with your shoes on is considered very rude. Shaking with your left hand is considered very dirty. In the Dominican Republic, time is very funny. 9 a.m. means 9.15 a.m. It can also mean 9.30 a.m. Punctuality is a little bit different than it is here in the United States. I love the Dominicans. And in Bangladesh, if you're invited to someone's house and you can't attend, it's best to not give a blunt no, as that is interpreted as devaluing the host. Say, you should say, I'll try to make it even if you can't make it. These cultural distinctions, neutral cultural distinctions, don't make a person righteous. But if we lose sight of grace, sometimes we can begin to think that if we're more punctual than our brother or sister, that we're more responsible and therefore better. Or if we're less punctual, we're more relaxed. We're less uptight and therefore better. Or if we're more direct, we're more honest and therefore better. Or if we're more, if we're, if we're more compassionate, perhaps, we're more loving and therefore better. But these things are not what makes Americanness as much as I like it and as much as I will remain American. That is not what makes me righteous. Being all of us, it celebrates much and it transforms all. Finally, the gospel gives us unity. The gospel gives us unity. One pastor titled his sermon on this text, Unity is Sometimes Wrong. <laughs> He's right. Sometimes unity is wrong. Up for debate here was the very nature of the Christian gospel, that it's grace alone, through Christ alone, that it's all about Jesus, that he's enough. And the other viewpoint was that it was Jesus plus something else. And so there could be initially no unity. There needed to be clarification. But once the truth won out, Notice the concerns of Jewish Christians weren't just laughed off. 
they weren't these triumphant, proud Christians. The gospel of God's grace humbled them. They knew that they had freedom in Christ, but they're trying to think about unity with people who think a little bit differently than them. And the answer they came up with is what we often refer to as the principle of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is basically summed up by St. Augustine. He says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. The church was debating over an essential in this passage. That issue was solved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. He's enough. But then they were looking at non-essentials, things like what they can eat, what are proper marriage practices, and they recognize that just because they have freedom in Christ to do something, if it's truly offensive, if it truly puts a stumbling block from someone being able to come to faith in Christ, they should do their best to not do that. Not because it's a sin, but out of consideration for the conscience of others. Now, the same is true for us. The gospel humbles us. It reminds us that the, the level at the foot of the cross, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it reminds us that when we're saved into Christ, we're saved into a family. And in that family, just as Jesus laid down his personal rights for us, we should be willing at times to lay down our personal rights and evil, even non-essential non opinions for the sake of maintaining unity in the church. I know we live in a day where everybody's offended by everything, but at times there are real rights and preferences that God calls us to lay down and or lay down in order for the greater good. Now, as we close and we prepare for the Lord's Supper, it's interesting that this passage is the only time in the book of Acts where God seems to stop the ministry, where he stops the mission, where he stops the effectiveness of the work of the church to other people. The work of the church essentially stops, it halts for a time to settle this theological debate. It's that important. The car needed servicing. And if they didn't figure it out, it would have been a catastrophic failure. But praise God this morning that we can remember from a beautiful passage like this that it's grace alone through faith in Christ alone that brings us to God. It's his amazing love. It's his amazing grace. It's his amazing mercy. At the end of the day, it's all about Jesus his resurrection life, his grace to us. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.